This is part three in a four-part series. Please listen to part two before continuing with this episode. Listener discretion is strongly advised. This series contains graphic discussion and details of violence, sexual assault, and homicide. Please check our social media for portraits and forensic sketches of the unidentified and unmatched victims. This is The Fall Line. I'm, you know, I'm glad they caught Mr. Little. And I remember one time a reporter asked me if I had something to say to Mr. Little. What would I say to him? And I told him the only thing I would say to him that huh, I want you to feel what the, all, all of these women felt. But, you know, like right now, if I see that man, I don't want to see him. I, I probably wouldn't do nothing to him, but I wouldn't want to see him. The man... It's easy. And from what I hear from Miss uh baby from the feds, uh Amy, the man don't have a conscience. We know that Samuel Little stayed on the move. State by state, week by week. This episode we continue with murders that occurred all across the southeast. Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky. It makes sense to discuss them that way, by place, because his timeline is jagged, cutting back and forth, killings coming as close as a day apart. Sometimes only hours separate locations. Sometimes he killed in one state and left a body in another. It helped him slow down investigations, if there were ones, helped to hide identity. We'll begin in Georgia. After all, Samuel Little was born here, in a tiny town called Reynolds. The population was less than 900 in 1940, and it's barely a thousand today. The town sits halfway between Macon and Columbus, with the Fall Line Freeway cutting through. Cars pass by, headed to Warner Robins or Byron or a dozen other larger destinations. There's not much available on Little's life in Reynolds. He didn't grow up there, at least not entirely. We know that, at some point, he went to live with his grandparents in Lorain, Ohio. Samuel Little has told authorities that his mother was a teenager as well as a sex worker. Now, we don't know if the latter is true. Sometimes he also says she abandoned him on the side of the road. According to Heavy.com reporter Alyssa Chouanier, investigators believe that Little's mother may have been in jail when she gave birth to him. Whether or not he grew up in Georgia... He has come home, and often. Samuel Little has confessed to nine murders in Georgia. Four of those cases have been resolved. Two have been linked to Jane Doe's. These women were discovered years before Little began drawing pictures and telling his stories. And then there are three women, two in Atlanta and one down in Savannah, who haven't been found at all. Of those three, he claims he can only recall a single name. Samuel Little came back to Georgia in 1977, after he'd met Jean Dorsey. According to Jack, the teenager who'd later travel with them, the couple had avoided some cities in the state, like Albany, 
where Jean had family, but also warrants out for her arrest. But with the exception of Albany, Samuel Little felt free to hunt. He would kill in Georgia twice in 1977 and come back again and again, up through 1984. Sometimes he'd meet a woman in another state and bring her back to Georgia to dump her remains. By the time Little began confessing, six of the nine Georgia cases were decades cold. As for the other three, as far as authorities knew, those women, the unmatched confessions, never existed in the police files at all. When Little's confessions began, James Holland reached out. He needed help to organize complex webs of officials. Feds, local authorities, the Department of Justice, victim advocates, nearly endless lists. Eventually, news reached Amy Hutzel. She's program director for the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council, or the CJCC. And she oversees the CJCC's Sexual Assault, Child Abuse, and Human Trafficking Unit. CJCC is a Georgia state agency, quote, that is tasked with coordinating criminal justice initiatives and facilitating funding. That can include everything from shelters for domestic violence victims to new victim-focused initiatives. Here's what Amy told us about her work. So we create projects using the resource of federal funds to provide additional resources to uh, the state of Georgia. So, for example, we have a sexual assault response team project that is funded through the Office of Violence Against Women, and we work with law enforcement and prosecutors and victim advocates and forensic medical nurses or SANE nurses throughout the state on the development of sexual assault response team protocols. We provide training um, and we've created multiple resources under that project to encourage best practices in the response to sexual assault crimes throughout the state. And we have received a $3 million grant from the Bureau of Justice Assistance to fund the Georgia Sexual Assault Kit Initiative. And this is the Georgia Sexual Assault Kit Initiative work that we have done that led us to participate and play a role in the Samuel Little cases in Georgia. I had an email from a woman named Dr. Angela Williamson, who um, works for the Bureau of Justice Assistance. She is a lead in the National Sexual Assault Kit Initiative, and she's also the Bureau of Justice Assistance's liaison to the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit's VICAP. Her email said to me, I wanted to know if you could help me on a multi-jurisdictional cold homicide case. And so I read that, and anyone who's a big crime buff or is interested in this field knows that a multi-jurisdictional cold case homicide is probably a serial killer. I've always been fascinated with the motivations of serial killers, even as a young person. I find it really fascinating to try to get into the mind of someone who would, as a purpose and pattern, kill multiple people. I think most of us can at least comprehend why a crime of passion occurs. Although we wouldn't do it ourselves, you can at least understand, you know, why someone may be so enraged from a crime of passion to kill someone, but to specifically set out 
to kill multiple people over your lifetime is something that I don't think we have a good answer for in terms of their motivation and the psychology behind that. She did not identify the suspect at that time. She said that they were keeping it confidential because they didn't want it to be leaked to the media, but that they had a suspect in custody in Texas um, that was working with a Texas ranger. Eventually, enough information passed along official channels so that, piece by piece, Little's trail through Georgia could be reconstructed. It began in Atlanta on June 27, 1977. According to 11 Alive, police were called to South Fulton, where a woman's body had been discovered in a wooded area just off Oakley Industrial Boulevard. Her remains were discovered by sanitation workers. She was eventually identified as Leanne Helms, a woman from Griffin, Georgia, who'd been seen at a local nightclub with an unfamiliar man. Witnesses offered descriptions that, in hindsight, lined up with Samuel Little. Though Fulton County police conducted interviews in 1977, it seems they didn't develop any leads at that point. By the time they were contacted regarding Little's confessions, Helms' case was four decades cold. Samuel Little was able to provide details regarding her murder, where she was found, and how she died. Investigators found his statements credible. He knew, for instance, that she had a 10-month-old son. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, she begged in her last moments that Samuel Little give her son a message. He killed her anyway. Little has claimed two other Atlanta victims, on whom we have almost no details. These are unmatched confessions, victims without bodies. They were Black women he described killing in the mid to late 1980s. He thought one of them might have been a local college student, the other may have been a sex worker. He has drawn portraits of both women, and we're told that APD is working both cases. Little titled these portraits, Atlanta College and Atlanta Black. Back to the 1970s timeline in central Georgia. By the summer of 1977, Samuel Little had made his way to Macon. He was familiar with the town, had even lived there for a while in the mid-1970s. According to the local Fox affiliate, He'd worked there in the sanitation department in 1975 and been arrested for a DUI during the same period. Apparently, he gave officers the name William Lewis. Two years later, he had returned to hunt in Macon. Little's first Macon area victim is usually called the Macon Bibb County Jane Doe. She was found off Arkwright Road in September of 1977. According to a Macon Bibb press release, quote, Deputies arrived on the scene and met with the property owners, the Bowman family. It was reported that the Bowmans discovered skeletal remains of a human lying in the yard near the edge of the woods. They stated that they could smell an odor for over a month, and they thought it was possibly from a dead animal. Mrs. Bowman was out in the yard when she noticed something lying in the yard. When her husband arrived home, they found the human remains, end quote. Namus's estimation for this Jane Doe's age is 28 to 52 years old. When the GBI's Marla Lawson did a forensic bust of the victim in 2017, her age range was listed as between 40 and 50. So far, Little has not done a portrait of this victim, and according to Fox 24, investigators said that, quote, 
We showed him the facial reconstruction the GBI had done, and he got upset because it didn't look like her. Whether or not this woman is a victim of Samuel Little, she needs to be identified, and a fresh investigation has brought that goal closer. According to Fox 24, investigators are pursuing the possibility of DNA extraction and forensic genealogy in her case. There's another Jane Doe in Georgia, a woman found in Dade County in 1981. There was initial confusion because Little seemed to have met this woman in Tennessee, perhaps in Hamilton County. Dade is in northwestern Georgia and borders Tennessee. According to News Channel 9, she may have been from Chattanooga, Alabama, or northwest Georgia. They report that the victim, a black female between the ages of 20 and 39, was tall, about 5 foot 9. She would have met Little in a bar on Chattanooga's 9th Street, which has since been renamed MLK Boulevard. Little described her as, quote, light-complected with a heavyset frame. As with the Macon Bibdo, he hasn't done a portrait. However, the GBI has produced both a sketch and a forensic bust of this victim, which were shown to Little. He described strangling her in his car and then rolling her nude body down a steep incline. This method comes up in a number of cases. It was a convenient way of disposing of bodies. We spoke to Amy Hutzel, who you heard from earlier in the episode about the Macon, Bibb, and Dade County Jane Doe cases. So with the Jane Doe's, although those investigators who've worked on those cases, you know, believe that they have matches to the Samuel Little confession, these cases are still unresolved in the sense that we don't know who the victims are. We don't know who their families are. And so one of the things that we have looked at as the Georgia Saki Task Force and the Georgia Saki Project is utilizing some of the funding we have under our grant to potentially do genetic genealogy searches or familial DNA searches on the DNA that we could potentially extract from the remains of those two Jane Doe's. We're in the process now of trying to locate the remains make sure, you know, we have enough to get a DNA extraction from and kind of analyze that evidence as a task force and then potentially utilize them to find relatives because these are families that have probably no idea what happened to their loved ones so many years ago. And so that adds kind of an additional, I think, amount of trauma and pain to those families. And so if, if there's any way possible that we can help identify those two, then, then that's something that we're going to continue to look into as well. The Dade County Jane Doe isn't the only victim who encountered Samuel Little in Tennessee. There are at least two other confessions linked to the state. Martha Cunningham was 34 years old on December 31, 1974, the last day her friends and family ever saw her. The Associated Press reported that Martha was, quote, an accomplished pianist and singer who joined her family to sing gospel as the Happy Home Jubilee Singers. Martha Cunningham was last seen around midnight by family who she joined at a gathering to welcome in the new year. There's evidence to suggest that she may have encountered Samuel Little as she headed out to attend a late-night prayer service at her church, Parkview House of God in East Knoxville. She never made it there. For 18 days, her family searched. When her body was found in a wooded area a few weeks later, they were shocked and horrified. 
Early news reports indicated that Martha might have been sexually assaulted, which suggested homicide. But within weeks of the discovery of her body, her cause of death had been ruled natural causes. Martha's family couldn't believe it. According to Knox News, that ruling wasn't unusual for the era, especially with many deaths assumed to be possible drug overdoses. But Martha didn't use drugs. Her sister, Jessie Lane Downs, said, quote, I never believed my sister died of natural causes. None of us did. According to the Knoxville News Sentinel, Martha had epilepsy. She'd experienced a seizure earlier in the day, and it seems county authorities deduced she'd had another seizure in the woods and that it led to her death. If Samuel Little hadn't brought up a Martha from Tennessee in 2018, it's unlikely her case would have ever been reviewed. When Little confessed to Martha's murder, he indicated that she'd suffered a seizure as he strangled her. And as Martha's sister Jessie explained to USA Today, quote, My sister didn't drive. How is she going to get out there? Martha's body was far enough in the woods that she was stumbled upon by hunters. It appeared she'd been dragged behind an outcropping of trees. And as USA Today reported, she was nude from the waist down. Asked about the investigation's, quote, shortcomings, a local officer told Knox News reporters, quote, that's hindsight. It's easier to look in the rearview mirror now. One has to wonder, when a half-naked woman who doesn't drive is found deep in the woods, hidden behind trees, with evidence of sexual assault, how much foresight is really needed to treat her case as a murder? Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. The final Tennessee victim is known only as the Knoxville woman. Details are sparse. Little recalls the murder as having occurred in the fall of 1974. According to Knox News, that's when he met, quote, a chubby black woman in her late 20s to early 30s, approximately 5 foot 6 inches tall and 120 to 130 pounds. He reportedly said that she was a sex worker. Knox News wrote that Little recalled meeting the woman at a bar on Magnolia Avenue and that, quote, he dropped her body a few blocks away in an overgrown gully. Little has not done a portrait in this case, and no potential unsolved cases have been offered as a possible match. Maybe, as with Martha Cunningham, the natural death file should be reviewed. Maybe, at the very least, more meaningful details on this victim can be gathered. Columbia, South Carolina, is about four hours south of Knoxville. That city was the home of a young woman, Evelyn Weston, who was just 19 when Samuel Little drove into town. In September of 1978, Evelyn was the mother of a young son. The state, the local newspaper, decided to describe her as, quote, unemployed rather than a stay-at-home mother. According to news reports, Evelyn had gone out to a club in the Percival Road area and hadn't returned. 
Though her car was eventually found outside a local restaurant, Evelyn wasn't in it. Her body was recovered miles away on a dirt road. According to the state, she was nude and had been shot in the head. It was when Richland County reviewed their cold cases that Evelyn's case came up as a potential match. She fit most of Samuel Little's profile, except for manner of death. A gunshot was unusual. According to WSI-TV, Little did not recognize her photo, but investigators are still pursuing the case because of other similarities. Per the investigator Smith, quote, he's indicated that he didn't think he killed her by her face, but we haven't given up yet by some of the details that do match up. Of all of the possible case matches for Little, this one seems the least likely to us, but investigators are still pursuing it. And Evelyn's family is still waiting for the final word, if it ever comes. According to Evelyn's younger brother, Danny, their mother had never really recovered from Evelyn's murder. And she died just a few years before this further information came. As for Danny, he just wanted to be in the same room with Samuel Little. He told Fox 57, quote, I just want to see him eye to eye, long as they keep him in there before I get to him. If I see him, I might do him the same way. He was six years old when his sister died. Evelyn's son, his nephew, was just two when she was murdered. The other South Carolina case is an unmatched confession, a victim whom Samuel Little describes as Charleston military base woman. According to some sources, this confession may actually apply to Evelyn Weston's murder, but there's nothing definite. Other sources believe that he may have the state wrong altogether. In any case, here's what he said so far. The Charleston military base woman was 28 years old and black. He's done a portrait of a woman who had a curled hairstyle and gently sideswept bangs. With Little's artwork, complexion and eye color aren't representative of the actual victim. He seems to choose the color and shade based on his mood and not his memory. Per the Post and Courier, all he could tell authorities was that, quote, he claimed to have deposited the woman in a field near a military base, close to a major traffic artery. According to Live 5 News, quote, investigators believe she was known to frequent the Sproul and Reynolds area and would have been on foot in the area. The Post and Courier reports that, despite a review of the files, authorities cannot find a case to match. And that's the frustrating thing with these confessions. Samuel Little remembers what Samuel Little wants to remember. The details are about him. He can spend hours shading a throat, but he can't remember if he was in Charleston in 1975 or 1982 or anywhere in between. Now we come back to Georgia, to Columbus, in August 1979. At the very end of a decade, in what is traditionally the hottest month of the southeastern summer. It was there that Little met a woman named Brenda Alexander. At the time of her death, Brenda was just 23 years old. According to the Ledger Inquirer, Little picked Brenda up in a Columbus nightclub and drove her over the Alabama border. The investigators who interviewed him told reporters, quote, he wrung his hands together and smiled and said, I knew she was mine. The Ledger Inquirer reports that Brenda's nude body was found on a dirt road in Phoenix City, just about two miles over the Georgia-Alabama border. We don't know much about Brenda. She's one of the few identified victims for whom neither a photo or a portrait has been shared. 
Amy Hutzel was also involved in Brenda's case, though, and was able to talk to us about its resolution. Phoenix City, Alabama is kind of almost like a suburb of Columbus, although it's in another state. So we made contact with Phoenix City PD. They were able to locate their records and found a case that matched and went out and interviewed Samuel Little as well and, and determined that that was a case match and the FBI agreed. So they closed that case, made notification to Brenda Alexander's family. That one was a little different because we weren't working as directly with that particular police department as we have with some of the Georgia police departments. And they were able to resolve it really quickly as well. So that was another success for them and closure for her family as well. It doesn't seem like he did much at all to like try to hide his crimes after they occurred. So do you personally think that he would have left her in Phoenix City trying to sort of throw anyone off? It doesn't even seem like he was thinking that anyone would care. Well, from what I understand about his mentality and strategy, so to speak, in terms of how he selected victims, he was looking for individuals that he felt like would not be missed. My experience in working with some of the victim's families is that he was dead wrong. They were missed. They were very loved and their families were were hurting and, and wanted to have answers. But he was very good about how he would immediately leave town after he committed a crime. He did not stick around to wait to see news stories, for example. He was very transient himself. He was moving all over the country. He had also, from my understanding, read detective magazines and been very interested as a child in crime. And so he was familiar with how to not leave a lot of evidence and strategically did that. So I think that was a big part of why he he flew under the radar for so long. Another case where Little flew under the radar, as Amy says, was the murder of Francis Campbell. In fact, Francis's case was not initially classified as a homicide at all. If James Holland hadn't gotten Samuel Little talking about Savannah, Georgia, it's unlikely that Francis's family would have ever gotten the truth. In 1984... Frances Campbell was just 22 years old. She was part of a tight-knit family. According to Savannah Now, she was looking forward to the birth of her first niece or nephew. Her sister Diane was six months pregnant. So her family couldn't understand why and how she would suddenly disappear. Why they had no word. It would be close to a year before they had some answers and more questions. According to the Augusta Chronicle... Francis's remains were discovered on a construction site for I-516 on a pile of debris. Investigators weren't able to tell her family what had happened. Her cause of death was listed as undetermined. Per the local Fox affiliate, Francis's sister Diane and her mother never really recovered from the grief. And now, all these years later, Diane knows what happened to Francis, who met Samuel Little at a local bar and agreed on a date but their parents aren't alive to get those answers. When we spoke to Amy Hutzel, she described Francis's case and how many other possible matches might have been labeled as undetermined. The Francis Campbell case 
was very challenging. We were working with Sergeant Rob Santoro from the Savannah Police Department. He was amazing and really collaborative with us and really trying to work to determine what cold cases they had in their records. He went out personally and interviewed Samuel Little, and we were just kind of coming up empty-handed. There was not the information that he needed in any case file that he found to match it up. So one of the things that they found nationally when working on the Samuel Little cases is that sometimes the cases can be misclassified in terms of the cause of death. And so, for example, a victim, it may be determined erroneously that they might have been a victim of a drug overdose or natural causes or potentially an accidental death. And it was really a strangulation homicide. And so knowing that, the way to kind of dig through that is to look at death records. Emma Wolf from the Georgia Psyche Task Force and Sarah Pedersen, our statewide SANG coordinator, has medical expertise, and myself went to the coroner's office in Chatham County, and Emma and Sarah were there for a good solid two and a half days. I give them all the credit for the work that they did. I was kind of in and out, going to some other meetings, mostly them, but, but the three of us looked at every death record in Chatham County. For, the, for a period of about five years, looking to see if there was anything that might match up with what he had said about this particular case. So one of the things that he said was that he left this victim on a sand pile. He strangled her and left her on a sand pile. So after two and a half days of looking at death records, we were literally getting ready to leave. We had to get back to Atlanta. We didn't really have any more time, but we wanted to finish the box that we had started. We stayed a little bit later than we had planned. And as we were going through that box, I will never forget Sarah said, Amy, I think I have something. And she handed me a death certificate that had a rusted paper clip with a piece of torn notebook paper attached to it. And the note said, was handwritten, and it was to the corner, and it said, this individual was found on a trash pile in Fremont Park, I believe. I might be getting the park name wrong. And the, the trash pile, similar enough to what we knew that he said, the location was right. The year was approximately right. We turned that over to Rob Santoro. He looked into it. He made contact with Francis's family. Obviously, it was her death certificate. He made contact, got photographs of her, and he sent them out to Samuel Little at that time was incarcerated in California. And he sent them out to California Corrections. Somebody showed Samuel Little her picture, and he said, yes, that is her. That's an example of really how challenging these cases could be because it was not actually even classified as a homicide. And so, and her family never knew what happened to her until 
Rob, you know, did make contact again with them and notified them that we had determined that she had been a victim of Samuel Little. And there were boxes and boxes. And that was just yeah. one one of the ideas that you had of how to how to try and find what had happened in this case. The Chatham County Coroner's Office is a tiny building. Most of their records are stored off site. So we had called down ahead of time with Rob Santoro's assistant, and they had pulled uh, those boxes out of storage and had them waiting for us. And there were literally in a tiny room, and I want to say this room was probably like six by eight, and there were just boxes everywhere, and we had to just go through them one at a time. We, we, we learned a lot about deaths in Chatham County for those years. Do you think that a lot of the other confessions that have yet to be matched up are sitting somewhere in a box that just needs to be gotten to? I think that's highly possible, yes. It's not just misclassification that can become an issue in matching these cases up. The Atlanta cases, for example, it's very complicated from a jurisdictional perspective. So the two Atlanta cases that still have not been matched up were both victims that he met on Auburn Avenue, and he's unclear about where he took them. And so anybody who lives in Atlanta or has been to Atlanta or who knows anything about Atlanta knows that the Atlanta metro area is comprised of so many jurisdictions. And then if you determine the appropriate jurisdiction, was that even classified appropriately as a homicide? There's one more case from Savannah, and it has its own complications. Of all of Little's confessions, he's the least sure of the death of a woman he calls Cat. Not because he can't remember her. It's because he's not entirely sure that she died. If she survived the attack, it's unlikely she reported it to police. But it's possible her friends or family might have known. And investigators hope that they can find a survivor or a victim who fits the following profile. Here's what Little had to say about her. Sometime in 1974, he met a woman he remembers only as Cat down in Savannah. He estimates that she was between 23 and 28, and per Savannah Now News, described her as, quote, a black female who was five feet, two inches tall and weighed about 120 pounds. Little has done a portrait of a smiling woman with an oval face and long, medium brown hair. The victim that he is referring to as Cat in Savannah has been really challenging. As we were down in Savannah looking for the records that led to resolving the Francis Campbell case, we were also looking for the victim he identified as Cat. He indicated that as he was in the process of strangling her, he saw some blue or red lights. He was in a park in Savannah and he got spooked, I guess, that perhaps he was going to get caught. And so he stopped and left her body and took off. So we're not sure. He he said he wasn't sure that she was deceased. And so because we've kind of exhausted um, a lot of the avenues looking um, through those death records and looking at the cold cases that Rob Santoro has has gone through, we're kind of at the point where we feel like perhaps that was not 
uh, a true homicide because we haven't been able to come up with anything on that. And down in Savannah, they've done press releases and news segments where they have taken Samuel Little's artist renderings. As you know, he paints his victims, broadcasts them to the community, and and have come up with with nothing. And so, not really sure where we're going to go with that one. Um, but it's possible that that was an attempted homicide, not an actually completed one. Here's what Samuel Little told investigators about Cat. She lived in a duplex. She had a roommate, another Black woman whom Little identified as a lesbian. He said the roommate used snuff, which is a form of tobacco. He said that they'd had sex in his car and that he'd strangled Cat there. And according to Savannah Now, he, quote, told investigators he left a woman's naked body in a grassy area on Montgomery Street and circled the area after other people arrived, end quote. There's no indication a body was actually discovered that night, and he'd heard nothing else. There have been no reports to indicate otherwise. If you live or have lived in the Savannah area, please take a look at Kat. You can find her portrait, along with all the others, on our social media. Perhaps you'll see a friend who lived through 1974, or can give a name to someone who disappeared. In the early 1980s, Samuel Little headed further north, up into Bowling Green, Kentucky. In May of 1981, Linda Subords was 23 years old. Though, when the first reports came out about her death, she was thought to be much younger, about 16. The Bowling Green Daily News reports that Linda, who lived in Smith's Grove, had come into town with her sister and brother-in-law to enjoy the local nightlife. It seems that when her relatives were ready to head home, Linda decided to stay at the club. That was on the evening of May 11th. Linda was never seen alive again. On May 16th, investigators reported that they'd found a woman's body in a rural barn. An article from the Courier-Journal indicated that she'd been strangled. There are no other substantive details available regarding Linda Sue's life, and her family declined requests from their local news stations in the past few years. All we know is this. The case was linked to Little when both his wide range of confessions and his M.O. became known, and the investigators from Bowling Green traveled to Texas to speak with him. As in the other cases, they reported that he shared details that only the killer would know, and according to the Bowling Green Daily News, he'd only been in town for that one day. In so many cases, Samuel Little's crimes have ever-expanding pools of victims. The women he killed, their loved ones, their communities, and sometimes the innocent people who are suspected in his crimes. All of those pools coalesced in Macon in the second murder Little committed in that town. It's one of the Georgia cases, like Francis Campbell's, where we've heard from the victim's family in the media. In this case, it was the 1982 murder of Fredonia Smith. It was July 10th and hot in Macon. It's always hot then. And Fredonia was just 18 years old. She'd grown up close with her older brother, Eddie. They were only a few years apart in age. And me and Fredonia, we were... Uh... About to around about the same age. So a lot of people thought we were twins, but we wasn't. So y'all were close. Yes. What did you do together when you were young? Uh, just about everything. 
you know, uh, if I went in junior high school, if I wanted to go to a basketball game, a football game, my mom made us both go together. You know, uh, a group of kids out in the neighborhood, we all get together and go to the game together. And uh, my mom made me, Sedonia and myself, stay together. And if we can get with the crowd, but we had to be together. What was she interested in? Hmm, music. Yes, music, dancing. Sedonia had a uh, real friend, and she loved, you know, she was the type of person that loved being around people. Uh, she loved having fun, uh, you know. The older we got, you know, I wasn't a, uh, you know, I kind of went my way. She went her, her. But the only thing I can say, she loved kids. She loved, she loved kids. Uh, she loved being around people. And she would do anything for someone that she was able to do. Eddie was living at home with his sister and his parents that summer. And things were quiet. No one thought anything of it one night when Fredonia decided that she wanted some dessert. Fredonia's parents told the Megan Telegraph that on the evening of July 10th, 1982, their daughter, quote, wanted to get some ice cream, accepted some money, and walked to a street corner near her home the night she disappeared. At the corner, she accepted a ride from a man she knew. This may have been her boyfriend, we know from Fredonia's brother, Eddie, that she later got into an argument with that particular young man. Here's Eddie's recollection of what the sheriff's office later told him. My sister and her boyfriend got into an argument, and Mr. Little, he, her sister, jumped out of her boyfriend's car and started walking. And Mr. Little uh, started following her. And he tried to make a pass at her, and she retaliated on him and hit him. And uh, he told the police that she was getting the best of him and that she slipped. And that's when he got a chance to kill her. Of course, Fredonia's family had no way of knowing that. And with their 18-year-old daughter, an adult with her own life, filing a missing persons report could be more complex. She had been... She didn't, my mom hadn't seen her for a couple of days, and we knew something was wrong. And uh, my mama told me to wait to the third day, and she was going to want me to uh, go down to the police department and file a, a missing person report. And on that third day, I did, as my mo- mother asked, and uh, they told me she'd probably be back home. She probably ran away. That's what black girls do. They run away from home. But as we know now, Fredonia hadn't run away from home. Her family knew that immediately, and they knew it after six weeks, when she was still gone. Her family had searched. In fact, Eddie told one local paper that he'd rested on a park bench just a few short feet away from where she was eventually discovered. But no one could find her. Though there was little coverage of her disappearance, there were plenty of rumors. There always are. When Fidonia uh, came up missing, a lot of people said a lot of things, you know. Uh, they, it, uh, it was saying, uh, they, it was said that a serial killer did. But people were saying all, it was saying all kinds of 
Her body was discovered in October of 1982 in an area the AJC described at the time as near a city park. Later, it would be identified as Washington Park. Authorities told the paper at the time that her cause of death was undetermined. In fact, according to the Brunswick News, Fredonia's skeletonized remains had been found on the property line of a family, the Hockmans, who just recently moved into their home. Mildred Hockman told reporters that the body had been discovered in the underbrush, just a few yards from their back porch. Unlike her disappearance, Fredonia's death got more attention than we've seen in other cases. We think it's because there was so much coverage of two other suspected serial killers, a couple called the Neelys, who'd been operating in the Southeast in the 1980s. Fredonia was suggested by various outlets as a possible victim of the Neelys, but Macon authorities never indicated whether or not they considered the scenario likely. Eddie Lee had his own suspicions, namely the boyfriend who Fredonia had been fighting with on the evening she disappeared. The thought came to him slowly in the days of grief that followed the discovery of her body. The day of the funeral, I seen all, a lot of red roses uh, up around, uh, up front. And, uh, I, you know, I got up and walked up there. Some just told me, give us who sent all them red roses. And it was a boyfriend. And I looked around the church and I didn't see him anywhere. And the first thing I said, he killed my sister. It hit me. Eddie Lee spent more than three decades believing that his baby sister had been murdered by her own boyfriend. When we interviewed Amy Hutzel, she said that there hadn't been enough evidence to move forward with a case against Fredonia's boyfriend. And to quote Amy, thank God for that. An innocent conscience would not have necessarily equaled an innocent verdict. For Eddie Lee's part, he at one point considered enacting his own justice. He held that grudge for years, up until he was approached by local authorities. They wanted to talk to him about a man being held in Texas, a man named Samuel Little, who had just confessed to Fredonia's murder. I said, y'all, I told him, well, y'all got the wrong man. The investigator told me, no, the guy confessed to this. He killed two women in this area. And, uh... He knows some things only the killer would know. Amy Hutzel assisted in looking for connections between Little's Macon confessions and Georgia's unsolved cases. She discussed that experience with us this summer. We started looking at cold case files, and I recall that Major Woodford, as we were looking through some of those files, had an idea that he ran by Captain Jones, and he said, hey, we should really call a man named Jimmy Barbie. And so Jimmy Barbie was a retired homicide detective, and they proceeded to tell me that he had been assigned to cold cases, and he was the type of investigator who was really old-school homicide detective, like cigarette and black coffee, pouring over case files, and that he knew uh, every detail of every case he had ever looked at. And so in that moment... They picked up the phone and on speaker, they called re retired investigator Jimmy Barbie and he picked up the phone. I believe he was fishing on the lake and he proceeded to say that sounds like the Fredonia Smith case. It was a really unique opportunity to, because of the, the information that 
that retired investigator had retained for so many years because of the fact that their records were so well kept um, and because the fact that they were so receptive to my help and receiving the information were so collaborative, it was a really rare opportunity to actually close a cold case homicide committed by the world's most prolific serial killer in one afternoon. And that doesn't happen. These cases are extremely challenging. We sent the information up to the FBI. They agreed that it was a perfect match. And so, again, we didn't even know at that time who the suspect was. They asked us to, to keep it confidential and just sit on it until they were comfortable. And so, that's what we did for a few months. Then when we got the authorization from the FBI and we found out that we were dealing with Samuel Little, we made notification to Fredonia's remaining relative from her nuclear family to the remaining, her remaining relative was her brother, Eddie Lee Smith. Um, her, her parents had passed away and I think she had another sibling that had passed away as well. So everyone believed that the boyfriend had killed her for all those years. And so you can Google and, and find new segments of Eddie Lee on making television, actually apologizing to the boyfriend without actually naming him. And I won't name him either, but he said something along the lines of, I owe someone an apology and you know who you are. And I apologize. And so it was really powerful to be able to kind of facilitate that kind of healing through the closing of this case. It gives Eddie Lee some comfort that his sister fought Samuel Little and ferociously. But even with a confession, Samuel Little won't face real justice. And what exactly, after so many years, would that justice be? Eddie Lee thinks about it a lot. He seems to have settled on Samuel Little's ultimate judgment coming at the hands of God, along with his own. You know, I knew that I had to forgive him because, you know, if I don't, if I don't forgive him, uh, I, I'm going to get to heaven. You know, so I had to pray and pray about that. It don't help much, and I'm still praying. <laughs> yes. I guess I haven't forgave him 100%. I guess I'm just saying the word, but uh, I that's what I know I need to do. Fredonia Smith's death impacted everyone her life had touched, from her parents and friends to the investigator who still had her case memorized decades after his own retirement. To say Samuel Little killed 93 people is true. But the lives that he's destroyed in so many other ways are perhaps beyond counting. In August 1984, Samuel Little was in Mobile, Alabama. The town was home to Hannah Mae Bonner and Ida Mae Campbell. There's not a lot of information about either woman's life, but Bonner's family, she was a mother, indicated that the two women were friends. Hannah had several children, including Glory, who was only eight when her mother died. Glory was the main family spokesperson over 30 years later when Little's confessions came to light. Glory described her mother as a joyful person with an easy smile, someone who left a huge hole in the family after her disappearance. Glory told NBC 15, quote, 
What he took from us, we can't get back. He took so much. The events unfolded on August 10, 1984. It's unclear whether Little met the women at different points in the night or together. According to NBC15, he picked them up separately. That was Little's memory. But a different report came from Alabama News, which is a site that gathers reporting from several local papers. And it's worth noting that they were pulling on several decades of reporting on the cases before Samuel Little's name was involved. According to their coverage, as early as 1993, an acquaintance reported seeing Ida and Hannah together. They'd pulled up in a, quote, burnt orange van driven by a large black male. The witness said the two women, who were just 23 and 24 when they disappeared, purchased cocaine from a local dealer. They then climbed back into the van and left the area. It was the last time they were seen alive. Whether they met Little alone or separately, Hannah and Ida were both lost to their families that night. The women were still missing the next morning, and it would be three days before Hannah Bonner's body was found. The Mobile Register reported that she wasn't immediately identified. When her body was recovered in a ditch off a country road, they were only able to describe her as a tall black female with a distinctive tattoo, partially dressed in a tube top, her manner of death unclear, although homicide was likely. They planned to send her fingerprints to the FBI labs for analysis. But in a short time, that proved unnecessary, and the identification was made. Her daughter, Glory, still remembers the knock at the family's front door. It was, quote, the day the sheriff came and said they found her body. Within a few days, the family had some information, but no real answers. By the 15th, the Mobile Register reported that Hannah May had died of drowning and blunt force trauma to the head. When Little recounted Hannah's murder, he said he'd strangled her and dumped her body, like so many others, from his car. It would be three weeks before Ida May Campbell's family got word. Her skeletal remains had been found near Hall Mills Road in Mobile, and it was unclear how she had died. Identification was made based on dental records, particularly a gold tooth she'd had, and her personal items. Authorities felt the cases were connected. According to Alabama News, at the time, investigators suspected that travelers or drifters might have committed the crimes. The bodies had both been found near I-10, and there weren't clear leads pointing to anyone in the victims' own lives. Investigators told various local papers that the cases were being worked, but by 1993, there was not much hope that either would be closed. But as in so many other cases across the United States, that changed with the final arrest of Samuel Little. At the time of his confessions in 2018, it was unclear how or whether Little would face charges in the deaths of Ida Mae Campbell and Hannah Mae Bonner. As a local official told Alabama News, quote, he's never leaving prison, and I don't think Alabama will be the state he serves his last days in. We haven't come across a statement from Ida Mae's family, but for Glory, Hannah's daughter, it seems like for her, as for so many others, resolution just isn't the same thing as closure. Next time on The Fall Line, you'll hear the final episode in this series, Samuel Little's violent tear across Mississippi and Louisiana and the confessions he made to three cases in Arkansas. We'll also cover the two survivors who spoke at Little's hearings and the solved and unsolved cases across the rest of the Southeast. 
If you have any information regarding the Jane Doe's and unmatched cases we've covered in this series, please call 1-800-FBI-TIPS. If you would like to speak to a counselor regarding sexual assault, you can call Rain at 800-656-HOPE or 4673 to be connected to a provider in your area. You can go through the victim's portraits and forensic sketches on our Instagram account. Just search for Fall Line Podcast. As for the Fall Line, we'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken the time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dot. Special thanks also to research assistant Brian Waters, who also served as fact checker for this series. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and engineered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Research assistants are Kim Fritz, Lex Weathers, Jessica Ann, and Brian Waters with additional research by Haley Gray and Lexi Newhouse. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. Our current monthly donation is going to the Sovereign Bodies Institute. And be sure to check out the new independent podcast from narrator Laura Norton and producer Mara Curry. It's called One Strange Thing, and it's a storytelling podcast based on archival news. 